Welcome to Climate Frontiers, a podcast series exploring the latest thinking, approaches and debates in climate science, hosted by the Climate System Analysis Group, or CSAG, at the University of Cape Town. Hi, I'm Anna Taylor, your host for this episode. I'm a researcher with the African Climate and Development Initiative at the University of Cape Town, working on questions of how cities adapt to reduce climate risks. In this episode, we grapple with why climate change is such a complex problem, or rather set of problems, and what the Climate System Analysis Group at UCT and others are doing to make sense of the complexity, and to help make climate information clearer, more accessible, and actionable by those confronting climate risks. It could be a homeowner trying to decide whether to put their annual bonus towards installing solar PV on their roof or taking the family on an exotic holiday. It could be a government official preparing a new water strategy to make sure their jurisdiction doesn't run out of water during a drought in the next 10 years. Or an investor weighing up three potential wind farm projects to invest in. Or an emerging farmer trying to decide on whether to plant a newly acquired piece of land with more apple trees or whether to diversify into nut trees that are more heat tolerant. There are many people making decisions that have a consequence on the climate and that are impacted by the climate. So better understanding the linkages and feedbacks can make a real difference. Our conversation today is going to start off by unpacking the various dimensions of what makes the climate and the issue of climate change so complex. Then we're going to talk about the work going into trying to make knowledge of the climate and climate change more engaging and readily applicable to decisions and actions being taken. We are joined by Professor Bruce Hewitson and Isidine Pinto. Professor Bruce Hewitson is a world-renowned climate scientist who started the Climate System Analysis Group, or CSAG for short, back in the early 90s. He has been an influential voice in the global climate science community, including the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. He's been promoting the importance of tailoring climate information to the needs of decision makers across Southern Africa and beyond, and innovating with ways for doing so. Hi, I'm Bruce Hewitson. I have got very eclectic interests, but my primary desire is to serve the regional information interests of decision makers around climate change. Isidine Pinto is a climate scientist at CSAG who specializes in working with computer models of the climate system to generate weather forecasts and climate projections and to understand the system dynamics driving these. Isidine has also been working on the latest IPCC report. Hi, I'm Isidine Pinto and I'm interested in climate and weather extremes and decision making. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Okay, so hi everyone, and thank you very much for joining us. Today we're going to be talking about the complexity of climate change. So the topic we're going to be discussing today is grappling with the complexity of climate change, particularly to try and promote action on addressing climate change. Before we dive into some of the specifics, I thought maybe we do need to just briefly talk about what we understand or mean by complex or complexity. 
So to kick us off, I mean, to me, something's complex if there are many different parts that make it up that are interconnected and dynamic. And so change in one part has lots of knock-on effects and feedback loops um, to the point that it's difficult to capture and represent all of those interactions. And it's that feature that makes it difficult to fully understand and predict exactly how something that's complex will behave um, and how it will change under different conditions or circumstances. So that's kind of how, what I take from complexity. Bruce, I think you have a useful analogy that you use to help us to differentiate between something that's complicated and something that's complex. Can you talk us through that? Yes, I, I think this is actually a really important distinction to make between complex and complicated. Uh, complicated for me is like an old-fashioned wind-up clock or a watch. There's lots and lots of bits in there. It looks very complicated when you open it up. Um, and it's driven by a spring. The spring drives it. But everything is predictable. It's all well connected, well understood how it's connected, no matter how many lots of bits there are in there. On the other hand, if you take a very simple situation, like let's say we drop a brick off the top of a tall building, that's much simpler than a clock. Gravity powers it, you know it's going to go down, but suddenly you've got factors that you don't fully understand, like turbulence and wind and the tumbling of the brick, that while you know where it's approximately going to land, you don't know exactly where it's going to land because of the interactions with all these other factors. That's complexity. It's very useful to know where it's going to land. You might not be able to know the final detail. Very useful because you may be walking along the road below it. But we need to recognize that we can only capture a realm where it's going to land. And the climate is like that. We know the main driver, which is the sun. It's like the gravity and the brick analogy. And there's much that's going on that we know where we're headed. We know we're going to get warmer. But the complexity of the system means we can't get down to the very last detail. We can't say exactly where, in the analogy, the brick is going to land. Thanks, Bruce. I think that is a very useful way of distinguishing it. And now you've, you've already kicked us off in trying to map that idea of complexity onto the climate system. So maybe we can start by unpacking that a little bit further. You've mentioned the sun as one of the big drivers. Um, but let's try and talk through briefly some of the other moving parts that make up the climate system. Um, so Bruce, maybe you could just expand a little bit further. You, you kicked us off by talking about the role of the sun, but what are the other key components and processes that drive the climate system at large? Okay, well, so we said the climate is complex, but actually the climate is also very, very simple. It's just like the brick off the building. You can actually do some basic global warming calculations on the back of an envelope. But if we want to get at the decision makers' questions, we need to think of all the other factors that are going into the parcel. What makes the climate is a collection of weather events. And weather happens because the Earth receives more energy at the equator than it does at the poles. That's quite simple. And because you have that energy difference, you get motions in the atmosphere, you get motions in the ocean, and they're trying to equilibrate that energy. They're trying to equalize that energy out. If you change the energy, like we are doing with greenhouse gases, you change the motion. You change the weather, you change the climate. So it's simple. We're confident about understanding this. But now here's the problem. When you come down to the scale that you want to make decisions of adaptation or change, now we have to consider factors like clouds, water droplets, uh, irregular distributions of land and water, land surfaces that are both rocky in some places or dark, moist soils in other places. And we have massive ice sheets. All of these factors are interacting to modulate, to change the behavior at the local scale. 
All of them are interacting with the storage and the flow of the energy which drives the system. So when you start looking at all this, you have to look at all these other factors. And suddenly we enter the realm of complexity. Because we don't know the state of every molecule. We don't know the state of every cloud droplet. We can't treat it like a complicated watch that's predictable. We have to treat it like a brick off the building. We know where it's going. We know the general behavior. And we try to narrow that down as much as possible, um, even though we have to deal with some fuzzy details. So when we're talking about climate change, the general response to our global energies is simple. We already are and will continue to get warmer because we're changing the energy in the, in the atmosphere. But down at the scale of, for example, a city, I have to consider all these other factors. And suddenly this complexity says, well, I can tell you it's going to get hotter, but I can't tell you exactly how much it's going to be hotter by 2050. The details are not perfectly predictable. And this is our research focus. Can we say enough about the future state so it's useful for decision making, even if it's not perfect at the last detail? Great. So you've, you've said we a lot and you've spoken about trying to work out the behavior of the system. So maybe if I can hand over to Izzedine, you can tell us a bit more about the we, which I think Bruce is referring to as the scientists, the climate scientists working on this, trying to collect data and analyze these climate phenomena to understand them better. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about, about how that works, because from what I can see, you know, a lot of these goings on in the atmosphere and the climate system, we can't directly feel or see. And so I imagine there's quite a lot of complexity in trying to, to gather and analyze the data you need to understand these processes better. Can you tell us a bit about that? Well, uh, the climate system is a, is a result of interactions between elements from the atmosphere, which is our day-to-day -day weather, and oceans, ice, land, and the living organism on Earth. So all these elements are all connected and interact on a different time scales from hours to several years. And uh, when we look at the atmosphere component alone, or the weather, we know that it obeys physical laws, and because of that, we can predict with accuracy at shorter time scales from three to five days. So that's why you can look at the weather on your phone and decide on, on your activities on the weekends or what you can wear. So we do this uh, by building models based on our physical understanding of the weather. And this is also dependent on the quality and quantity of observational data that is available. And this data comes from, for example, uh, meteorological weather stations, uh, satellites, and weather balloons. And when it comes to uh, understanding the climate, we need to incorporate all the other elements I mentioned earlier into our models. And this is where it can become complex. And this complexity then creates uncertainties in our models and one of these uncertainties is the component that uh, results from the human behavior, such as uh, greenhouse gas emissions and land use change. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So what I'm, I'm taking from what you and Bruce have been saying is that it's complex, both in terms of there being lots of components and relationships between those components that make up the climate system. And then there's a fair amount of complexity to how we go about measuring and tracking those sort of features and dynamics. And partly that's because they play out at a variety of scales. So we've got on the spatial side, everything from very localized processes, but 
those aggregate up to a global scale. And then similarly on the temporal scale, we've got things happening from sort of minutes to hours, but then similarly much longer term processes that are playing out over tens or even hundreds of years. So maybe we could talk about two examples, maybe either extreme of those, just to to help our listeners understand some of what goes into the complexity of doing this climate science. So Bruce, you could just talk us through what's an example of a localized climate dynamic that plays out over fairly short time scales here in the Cape Town area where we are and some of the consequences those have. Sure. Well, Cape Town's a really nice example because we have some strong drivers of our weather, um, but those drivers also have some very subtle changes to them. So, for example, we know Cape Town is a very seasonal place. We have windy, hot summers. We have windy, uh, wet winters. And if we think about the cold fronts, which bring our rainfall, we know that when you get a cold front, we're likely to get rain. We know something about the strength of the cold front and about how much rain. But we also know that sometimes we get a cold front and we don't get rain. Well, sometimes we get a cold front and it rains so much more in one place and not in another place, unexpectedly. These are the subtle issues that are embedded within the cold fronts that we don't have all the details about. They're interacting with the mountains. The mountains change how the clouds form on the mountains as the air blows over them. The humidity content of the cold front is very deterministic of what happens to the cloud formations and the rain that we get. And so suddenly we have these secondary issues around a cold front that give us some uncertainty or some fuzziness about the actual prediction of how much rainfall we're actually going to get. And we get that with the high-pressure systems over summer as well. And we know that as we can talk about climate change influencing the high-pressure systems and the cold fronts and so on, we can generalize about what that consequence is going to be for Cape Town. But we also can't say a lot of the detail because of the complexity of the system about whether we're going to get exactly this much more in that place or exactly this much less in that place. Hmm. Definitely complex. Isidine, maybe you could help us zoom out a bit, because as I understand it, those localized processes are in turn informed and driven by some much bigger scale regional and global processes. So maybe you could help us understand that a bit better by giving us an example of a more regional or globalized climate dynamic that plays out over much longer time scales. Uh, yes, aside from the local dynamics that Bruce mentioned, there are also dynamics of atmosphere, sea and ice system that play an important role in the local climate. And uh, one example of this dynamic system is from the El Nino Southern Oscillation, or in short, ENZO. You might think uh, this is a villain character from a movie. And this is a phenomenon that occurs in the Pacific Ocean through changes in surface temperatures. And changes in ENZO behavior can affect rainfall over Southern Africa during our summer season. And this phenomenon, the ENZO, has a warm, uh, which is a El Nino, and cold, which is known as La Nina phase. And during El Nino, we can expect lower amounts of rainfall in our rainfall season, which is our summer, in most parts of Southern Africa. And during uh, La Nina, we can expect uh, rainfall above normal. And during neutral, neutral years, uh, it's a, a normal rainfall. And accurate predictions of ENZO provide the potential outlook of rainfall over Southern Africa. However, there are other players uh, such as the Indian Ocean Dipole, 
or IOD, and also the Southern Annular Mode, or SAM, that behave together with ENSO, and that affect our climate as well. And the main challenge now is how can we predict all these players when they act together uh, to improve our prediction? Wow, so that gives us a very good sense of how everything from the temperature of the sea surface in the Pacific to the Indian Ocean and the Southern Ocean all have a, an influencing effect over how much rain we get in the region, but I presume that also ultimately maps onto here in Cape Town, which after our recent multi-year drought, I think everybody is particularly tuned into um, what the implications of those dynamics are for us. So thank you for helping us understand that a bit better. And now I think that's definitely given us an appreciation for the complexity of the sort of biophysical climate system and how it works. So maybe now we can turn to climate change as a particular phenomenon occurring within that climate system. Because as I understand it, we've said the climate system itself is complex, but the issue of climate change adds sort of complexity onto either sides of that climate equation, so to speak. So we've got the complexity around what's driving the increasing concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And that complexity is understanding those contributions to growing greenhouse gas concentrations from the past, how they're occurring presently, and then starting to try and project how those emissions profiles might change under different conditions into the future. So that has a whole lot of complexity associated with it. Then I presume we've got the complexity of understanding how those changes in different concentrations of greenhouse gases um, affect the actual functioning of the climate system itself. Um, and then we've spoken a bit about how that in turn translates into regional and local sort of manifestations of those changes in the climate system. And then, of course, we've got the complexity of trying to understand how those climate changes impact on other processes like river flows or the distribution of mosquitoes and how all of those changes impact different people differently, which has a huge amount of complexity inherent in it. And then, of course, we've got the whole feedback process where we know that gradually more and more is being done to try and address the fact that the climate is changing and what those impacts might result in, which in turn has feedbacks to how much we collectively are emitting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, which drives the whole, the whole cycle. So from where I'm standing, I can see at least sort of five layers of complexity wrapped up in the climate change issue, um, which is no wonder that it's such a difficult one to grapple with, to understand how it works from a sort of scientific perspective, but then also for policymakers and practitioners um, and individual households to try and decide, you know, how to act differently in light of, of information, of the understanding that we're gaining through the science. So I wonder if we can, we can dwell on how we're trying to deal with all of those layers of complexity for this next part. So Bruce, I know you've been very influential in some of the international processes of trying to drive forward and consolidate the science within the climate science community. 
but then translate that into information that governments, businesses, companies, households can use to make informed choices about hopefully how to act differently to address the risks that climate change poses. So maybe you could just talk us through, I mean, I know it's a big question, but what has that entailed? How have we seen that relationship between the climate science community and the action-oriented community shaping up over the last while? Sure. So it's hard to know where to start because it is such a big question. But I think I would start off by saying that we need to realize that complexity does not mean we can't say things of use. Um, and what we're really talking about is a multi-decadal journey of going from the simple large-scale understanding of uh, climate change through down to progressively more details and more robust messages at the decision scale. So I've been in this since since I finished graduate school. And I've seen, I think, three phases of how our process has gone in terms of how we can help society in decision-making and responding to climate change. I think the first phase is best considered as a phase that was around building the evidence for the foundations. Developing evidence to conclude human-induced climate change is unequivocal, it's real, it's happening, and we are the source of the problem. And in that, laying out a map of possible futures, where might this be taking us as a world? Now, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change was at the core of this and has been for a long time in laying down that fundamental foundation. And in that first phase, um, we really were wrestling with the denier community. There was a lot of skepticism in the world. Um, and yet we were trying to say this is a real problem. We need to motivate for strong mitigation action to radically reduce our greenhouse gas emissions. This was also, I believe, an existential moment for many scientists. Scientists are trained to be objective independent, not emotive. But there's a real tension now with this real problem. How much should a scientist be an activist? How much should we engage with the, with the, um, the denial communities? And I think different scientists took different decisions on how to approach that. Following that, I think we moved into a phase where we are increasingly trying to improve the local scale information. And this was largely methodological. It was built around our computer models. Um, and we're trying to engage with the adaptation community, particularly, um, saying, here is information we can give you to help you make adaptation decisions, to develop action plans to respond to climate change. This was a period that was really fraught with research challenges around complexity and uncertainty. And there was a growing awareness through this phase that as physical climate scientists, we suddenly we didn't really know the context of the decision makers were working in. So we were handing over this information without really tailoring it and understanding exactly what they need to inform their decisions. And so we moved into the sort of third phase, which has really been an evolution that brings the physical climate scientists together with those working in the impacts and adaptation arena and in the social dimensions. Now, if you think the physical climate system is complex, just try combining this with socioeconomic and political systems. It really becomes complex. And it's been hard for all of us because it's also a mind shift to step out of our comfort zone of our own disciplines and engage with those in other disciplines and in social issues. I do suggest that CSAG has been a leader in this process globally. We've just finished this very successful fractal consortium project which we were leading on climate change in African cities. And that process for us was catalytic in moving us to a point of understanding about the transdisciplinarity of the issues, about how we need to contextualize it in order to become effective to help society move ahead. We're not fully there. And I think many international institutions are still walking that path themselves to try and get to the point where they fully understand context in order to inform the physical climate science. 
and so much remains to be linking the climate science and society for the regional decision context. But I do believe we've come to a point where we really have momentum and direction and a great deal of optimism that we are able to inform society in order to respond to climate change. Thanks, Bruce. I think by laying out those three phases, it helps us understand the different climate science that emerged, but also how there are different climate information needs that feed the kind of global policy debates around mitigation action. So trying to get countries to commit to how much they will on aggregate reduce their emissions profiles. Um, with obviously lots of discussion around how quickly we can get to net zero emissions and even start reducing, you know, having um, a negative balance in terms of of drawing some of that out of the atmosphere again, and how there are a very different set of climate information needs for the tending to be more localized conversation around how to deal with the risks and impacts that a changed climate on top of often a very variable climate, um, how that impacts locally and and what measures can be put in place from an adaptation perspective to reduce some of those impacts. Um, And I think you've usefully sort of differentiated what are two very big communities and bodies of work that make up the climate change field. So Isadine, if I can turn to you, as as an emerging scholar in this field, having heard about all this complexity, how do you navigate it and where are you choosing to place your research attention in this big and growing field? Uh, Well, thanks for asking. So it has been a learning journey for me and I'll share some learning experience from the IPCC. So I had the opportunity to participate in the IPCC as a lead author in the development of regional assessment of past and future climate. And prior to that, I was also part of the Fractal project, uh, which one of the aims was to improve uh, decision-making at the city level uh, based on climate information. And at Fractal, I had the opportunity to engage with stakeholders in the decision-making landscape and had the opportunity to participate in the IPCC and and, and in Fractal. It it has shaped a lot uh, my thinking. And uh, with this experience in these two sides, and uh, now as a researcher, I try to wear one shoe as a climate scientist and the other shoe as a decision maker. And this helps me to put uh, my analysis of the climate science of uh, analyzing multiple data sets from observations and climate models and put this information into a perspective that can be useful. But this has not been easy so far. So in summary, uh, I choose to place my research in the region's uh, information needs for the impacts, adaptation and vulnerability communities and decision making. Thanks, Isadine. So both of you have mentioned important roles that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, has been playing or continues to play in navigating this complexity. And then if I understood correctly, a more regional example of the fractal program that has also been making important inroads into translating climate information for decision makers and working to understand the context in which decisions are having to be made and how those can be best supported with evidence from the climate science community. 
So now if we look ahead, I'd love to hear both of your thoughts on what you think we need to be doing maybe more of, or maybe we need to be doing differently to deal with this complexity and really support ongoing and, if anything, more extensive and maybe more radical action on addressing climate change um, as we move forward. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, particularly with a focus on the African continent. What do we need to be doing more of or differently from within the climate science community to really support action on climate change? Bruce, can we start with what your some of your priorities would be? Sure. I think it's a fascinating question, but you'll get different answers from different people. Depending on the person's activities, some might be arguing for better and more complex computer models. Some will say we really need to be investing in a new paradigm of co-production with decision makers. And some will be pushing really strong on the mitigation side and national action towards carbon neutrality. And lots of things in between that as well. Of course, it's all of these. So I would rather focus it as a research question for the African climate research community and a vision perhaps that we need to think about uh, for our community. It's at the regional scale where complexity really becomes important. And so here we need to think about what are the feedbacks of importance in a region, what are the dynamics, etc., that we really need to understand. Essential is the question, how much of the physical climate system do I need to understand in order to be able to give actionable and relevant information to society? Or if I invert that question, I could say, what are the critical knowledge gaps that are stopping me from giving relevant and robust information to society? Those are the areas where we need to focus, and that's going to change depending where you are in the country. So if you're in Johannesburg, the types of research questions will have a different flavor to the ones if you're looking down over Cape Town, for example. But to complement this, this targeted regional physical climate research, we need to partner with other activities that better help us understand the decision makers' context. If I want to talk about rainfall in the Eastern Cape, I need to know what about rainfall is important for the Eastern Cape. Is it dry spill duration? Is it frequency of rainfall? Is it intensity of rainfall? I need to understand those in order to steer my research towards uh, the factors that I really need to understand to produce that information. So we need to understand context. It's essential to know the society's decision context. But we can't try and be a social scientist. As the physical climate scientist, we need to have enough awareness that we can do our work. But it's an endless rabbit hole if we get chasing down trying to be a social scientist and understand all the sociological sides of it. So as a physical climate scientist, I have to extend myself out of my comfort zone, build partnerships with those who are working in the social economic sectors in order to help me understand and manage this complexity. This requires a degree of humility. <laughs> we really have to say as a scientist, I actually don't know everything. Um, and scientists are not naturally given to that. We always have an opinion on something. But this has been very productive, very useful, and I think is the way forward, is through partnerships to explore this deep and difficult complexity and get to the resources and solutions that we need to find. Brilliant. That sounds like a punt for transdisciplinarity, which you know I'm very... Um <laughs> very keen on myself. So, Isidine, how does that sound to you? Uh, it sounds interesting, but I also would like to touch on an aspect of the physical science and that uh, for us to build our understanding of the physical science, we need data. And uh, Africa is a region with large gaps with observational data for various reasons. And also where the data exists, it's not uh, publicly available. And we need this data to be able to calibrate our, our models and to get a clear picture of the regional climate, uh, both past and future. So we need to invest heavily in data collection, are you saying? Yes, correct. 
that's a priority for the continent. Yes, as well. Sounds very sensible. Good. Okay. Well, I think as we start drawing to a close, I would like us very much to try and relate the conversation we've been having to this current moment in global history of dealing with the COVID pandemic. And I think COVID, interestingly, has taught us, well, has hopefully taught us a number of things about dealing with complex problems that involve complex, in the case of COVID, medical science, um, but clearly very complex decisions by governments, businesses, the public on how to respond to, to evidence from the science community on how to deal with with health risk in this case. But I think we've got a lot to learn within the climate community from this experience we've been having at the global scale. So I'd love to hear from you both, and maybe Izzadine, we can start with you on this one. But what, in your mind, what's a, what's a key lesson or a, a takeaway that we can gain from the COVID experience that we're all living through currently that we can maybe take into account or learn from in our work in the climate field? Uh, well, I'll say that uh, climate change, like COVID, is a global crisis uh, with uh, local impacts, as we have been seeing and watching, and that we need a collective action for, 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 this mitig for, for mitigation of climate change. And saying that uh, if society and governments uh, responded to climate change problems by listening to climate scientists the same way that... Uh, the government and society responded to medical advice to act fast about COVID, then the world will be much better. Interesting. Yeah. I think already there's a bit of a feeling that the global community didn't act fast enough on the medical advice, which I think mirrors some of the climate experience quite closely. But you're right, it's played out a lot more quickly and with a lot more radical action in, in, a, in a much shorter time scale than we've seen in response to similar alarm bells around the climate change problem. Bruce, can I hand over to you? What do you think we can learn from COVID? Sure. Um, I've, I've been fascinated by COVID. I think it's a compressed example of what's happening with climate change. And I'm not sure we've learned as much as we should have or could have from the COVID experience. Um, we have a propensity to drift back into our comfort zones um, and we don't like change. But that said, I think to me there are four key things that stand out from the COVID experience that I really think apply directly uh, to climate change issues. Firstly, was COVID was a conceptual threat, but it became a reality way, way faster than we ever expected. And I believe we are seeing that with climate change. Climate change is happening faster than we want to see or expect to see. And we're going to have to face up to that. Secondly, if we delay our response, as often happened in many countries around COVID, that greatly magnifies the impact that happens. We went into third waves and fourth waves in places. It makes the management of the problem almost become impossible when we delay our response. And it's, it gets way more expensive and way more disruptive to society. And that applies directly to climate change. If we delay our response, it's going to be more expensive, more disruptive, and more difficult to manage. The third is a sociological one, which really disturbs me, is that under COVID, the rich have got priority access and the poor have suffered more. And so the divide in society grows all the more. And climate change is doing the same thing. It's going to divide society more. We already are a polarized society, and this is deeply concerning to me if we don't address this proactively. And the last thing I mentioned is something that I think is really applicable at the individual scale. There's a difference between aware of something and being sensitive to something. We can all be aware of a problem, 
but very few people are proactively addressing a problem until they're personally impacted, until they're sensitized to it. To be sensitized is to be emotionally connected to a threat, and then we actually act. And sadly, I think for many, for far too many, that point of being sensitized only comes once you've been bitten in the backside. We really need to think about proactively preempting the problem, not waiting till we're impacting, uh, already been impacted. At climate change, I think in many areas of the world, we're getting to that point. The impacts are beginning to hurt people, and that's why we're seeing an accelerated response. People are becoming sensitized to act. But I fear we've left it so late that the problem is going to be way bigger than it could have been or should have been if we'd begun to act 20 years ago when we first understood this. Yeah, I think you're right. The parallels are striking. And hopefully, I remain optimistic that we we can and will learn some of those lessons. But you're right. The evidence isn't always greatly in support of us um, acting rapidly on what we've learned. Um. So thank you. I think we've given our listeners hopefully a lot to think about. I do just want to give you both the opportunity before I close and say thanks to share any last things. Is there anything you'd kick yourself if you didn't say on this podcast about the complexity of climate change and grappling with that complexity to promote action? Isadine, any last thoughts from you before we close? Uh, yes. Uh, uh Despite the complexity and uh, inner workings of the climate system, we know a lot already based on scientific understanding. And this has been shared from the IPCC in several reports. And we know how the climate might evolve in terms of changes in increases in heavy rainfall events, uh, increases in droughts and frequency, uh, heat waves and fire events, and how these will have negative impacts where we live. So there is a need for a global collective action on political will to implement policies to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Great. Thanks, Isadine. And Bruce, any final thoughts or comments from your side? Yeah, I'd actually like to quote Christina Figueres. She led uh, the international negotiations leading up to the Paris uh, Treaty around climate change. And she said in a conference once speaking to an auditorium of scientists who are working on adaptation and climate change, she said, don't hide in the aggregate. Basically, she was saying, don't use complexity and all the noise and all the difficulties and challenges as a reason to be apathetic about personal action, but to have the courage of conviction to say, I will play my part in finding a solution, even though there may be some personal cost. Everybody's going to have some cost associated with this. Um, let's get engaged sooner rather than later and take on our personal responsibility. Thanks, Bruce. A call for us all to step up. Well, thank you both very much. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks, Isadine, for sharing your thoughts with us on this tricky topic. Um, hopefully, we've helped people wade through some of that complexity and unpacked it to a point where it's a little bit clearer, at least, where all of it's coming from. And we've definitely heard you both say that despite that, we know enough to act and we know enough to know that we need to act sooner rather than later. Um, because we're already feeling some of the impacts across the world. And so hopefully we can take our lessons from COVID and see a greener, more climate resilient, low carbon pathway emerging from the pandemic and our efforts to recover from that. So thanks for your time. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of Climate Frontiers. Look out for future episodes on this platform or 
subscribe to the CSAG newsletter at csag.uct.ac.za to be alerted to our new podcasts. This project was brought to you by CSAG at the University of Cape Town. This episode was produced by Andre Burnett, original intro song created by Leroy Nell. This is the CSAG community, connecting science and society for positive change.